The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Lloyd, today our show is about snitching and criminal informants. You know, I had read an article about this book called Snitching, and then I got the book and I was fascinated and decided that I absolutely had to invite the author of this book. The name of it is Snitching Criminal Informants and the Erosion of American Justice by Alexandra Nadapoff. And I have her on the line, but I want to tell you about this fascinating woman. She's an award-winning legal scholar and attorney and a nationally recognized expert on criminal information informants. She is professor of law at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, and she's a graduate of Yale and Stanford, and she's a member of the American Law Institute. And she is she is actually the author of this book that is so fascinating. Although it's really nearly invisible to those of us in the public, criminal snitching has invaded the American legal system in risky and really shocking ways that she's going to talk about. And I, I just want to read from the back of the book. This is this is kind of a interesting cover with this this rat. <laughs> it's, it's you know I, we have to talk about that cover. It's it's great. It's very uh, provocative. But um, this is what uh, Robert Weisberg, Edwin E. Huddleston Jr., professor of law from Stanford Law School's founder and director of the Stanford Center for Criminal Justice. This is what he says about this book. He says superb. A searing indictment. This brilliantly original book is wise and ruthlessly honest in its understanding of the street-level practices of informant reliance. Quite scary when we think about it. So um, I just, if to find out more about the book, you can go to snitching.org. But we are going to hear now, and thank you so much, Alexandra, for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mari. Yeah, uh, you know, you always wonder about these snitches. You know, they're, they're going to get off and they're going to go free or they're going to get a, a lesser sentence. How reliable is that? Well, you really put your finger on uh, the, the deep compromise that using criminal informants, uh, you know, forces us all to confront. By definition, these are criminal offenders. They're suspects. They're people who are trying to work off their own criminal liability by providing information to the government. And there are really uh, two immense challenges. The first, as you point out, is reliability. How good is this information? And we have seen all over the country, study after study, um, 
uh, uh, government official after government official questioning and realizing that these um, informants, sometimes they're jailhouse informants, they're maybe drug informants or other kinds of criminal offenders trying to work off their sentences, are uh, capable and, uh, and willing to fabricate evidence in order to get themselves a deal. Uh, there was a study a few years ago by the Northwestern University Law School Center on Wrongful Convictions, and they looked at all the capital convictions, all the death penalty convictions that we know to be wrongful today. And they asked, how did these innocent people end up on death row? And when they counted noses, it turned out that over 45% of those innocent people on death row in this country were there because of a lying criminal informant. The unreliability problem is just massive. Oh, my gosh. So for, for prosecutors, how important are these criminal informants in the criminal system? I mean, it, it sounds like when you're talking about 45 percent of them on death row were really from informants. I mean, how how much how important is it to our system? What would happen if we didn't use informants? Well, you know, at the beginning of the show, you uh, flagged for everyone that this phenomenon is really invisible in many ways. And it's, uh, it's very hard for the public to get information about how prevalent this practice is. Uh, but, uh, but what is clear from inside the criminal justice system and from everybody who knows how the system works, criminal informants are everywhere in our criminal justice system. Uh, they are heavily relied on by police. They are heavily relied on by prosecutors. Defense attorneys now have to constantly consider the question of whether their clients, their defendants, should become informants. Criminal informant practices are important at sentencing. Courts and judges have to consider informants in deciding whether to give uh, give people a break, whether to give them a shorter sentence. So while informants are clearly very important to prosecutors in making decisions about cases. It is not limited to prosecutors. In fact, at every stage in our criminal system, criminal informant use is very important. Right. And so, yeah, I would, and when you bring up about the defense attorney, they want to use it because then that's going to get their, maybe their defendant off or maybe give him a much lesser sentence. So, yeah, well, it turns out that being an informant can be an extremely beneficial arrangement for offenders, sometimes very serious offenders. One of the real challenges that we've seen over the past decade or so is as information has come to light about the very, very serious crimes that criminal uh, criminal informants commit and that the government knows they have committed and are committing. Mm. We need to ask, is there any limit to the kind of crime we will tolerate in exchange for information. This has really been the challenge uh, that we've seen with the FBI in recent years uh, because the FBI has so um, it, it has been so infamous in its relationship with its criminal mafia informants. Uh, your listeners uh, may know of the story uh, a little over a decade ago. Uh, Stephen Flemmy and Whitey Bulger were uh, Irish mafia figures in Boston. Uh, they were also informants for the FBI. And for many, many years, the FBI, their FBI handler helped them, protected them from investigation, not only tolerated, but actually facilitated the commission of crimes as serious as racketeering, money laundering, even murder. Mm. And when this uh, terrible compromise came to light that the FBI 
uh, that individuals in the FBI had been tolerating this kind of crime from their informants, the U.S. Department of Justice rewrote the rules. They said, uh, we have to keep better tabs on this practice. We have to keep tabs on the kinds of crime that informants are permitted to, to commit. And uh, we need uh, accountability mechanisms here in the government because this world is just, it's too unregulated and the compromises are too important. Okay, so they said we need rules. So what are the rules? Did they actually create some rules? Well, the Department of Justice... Uh, created rules that apply to the FBI. And, and I like to refer to them as the gold standard because it's really the, uh, the leading agent, law enforcement agency in the country that has rules. And you can look them up on the Internet. You can look them up on my website. The Department of Justice says this is how you have to handle informants. You have to keep track of them. Uh, you have to have supervision. Uh, no more of this old model of an agent has their informant and nobody else knows about it. It can't work that way. This is a this is a public policy, and we have to treat it like any other serious public policy. Transparency, you're saying? Absolutely, transparency and accountability. Fascinating. Uh, the guidelines have built in what are called tier one and tier two authorized criminal activity, and what that means it's it's a list of crimes kinds of crimes that a handler can authorize their informant to commit in order to get information. And so, again, this goes back to the compromise of using criminal informants. By very definition, the government is tolerating crime when it uses a criminal informant. Past crimes that the informant may have committed, ongoing crimes that the informant may continue to commit in order to get information. And the FBI acknowledges that uh, it's informants above and beyond the crimes that they are authorized to commit also often continue to commit unauthorized crimes. And so the rules that the Department of Justice have promulgated are, are relatively uh, rare. Most jurisdictions have no rules at all. Most uh, police departments, investigative agencies have uh, rules that vary widely and wildly uh, from place to place. There really is no set of rules governing this universe. Oh, my goodness. So so help me understand when um, when the, the rules that, that you talked about that are like the gold standard, they have not been, they've only been adopted by the FBI or haven't they even not been adopted by the FBI? You said that the jurisdictions differ. So is that something like the Justice Department agrees to these and, and pretty much tries to follow those or what? So the way it works is the U.S. Department of Justice has jurisdiction over all federal uh, law enforcement agencies. So the FBI, the DEA, the Secret Service, the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms. And when the Department of Justice issues rules for those various agencies, those are the rules for those agencies. So the Department of Justice told the FBI, you have been having terrible problems with your informants. Here are new rules for you. But those rules don't govern everybody, even in the federal government, and they certainly don't govern any other law enforcement agency anywhere in any state or anywhere else around the country. Uh, uh, by contrast, uh, very interestingly, just a few months ago, Congressman Stephen Lynch in Massachusetts introduced new legislation, uh, and it would require all federal agents, uh, law enforcement agencies, not just the FBI, to report to Congress how many crimes its informants commit. That's kind of counterintuitive uh, in a way to even realize that that is what is going on. But 
these informants are committing crimes and their handlers and the agencies know or have reason to believe that they're committing these crimes. And at this point, there's no obligation on the part of any of these law enforcement agencies to tell anyone about it. Uh, What this legislation would do is it would require the FBI, the DEA, the Secret Service, and all the other law enforcement agencies supervised by the Department of Justice to tell Congress every six months, here's how many murders our informants committed. Here's how many serious drug deals they engaged in. Mm. Here's how many kidnappings took place. And I think it's surprising and sometimes shocking to people who do not work in the criminal system to realize that without legislation like this, Congress, the public, courts, the media will never know if these crimes were ever committed by people who are actually working as informants for the government. Oh, my goodness. We are speaking with Alexandra Nadapov, who is an attorney. She's an award-winning legal scholar and a nationally recognized expert on criminal informants. And she is this, the author of this book that we're talking about that I have right in front of me, Snitching Criminal Informants and the Erosion of the American Justice. American Justice. Let me ask you something. Um, are these informants ever required to take a lie detector test? So sometimes uh, in a case or an agency may ask their informant to take a lie detector test, or they don't have to. Uh, This is really the Wild West of criminal law. There are so few rules. Now, to be clear, there are some agencies that, that create and handle their informants responsibly. And while we don't know the kinds of rules that law enforcement agencies have around the country because they're not required to disclose them, sometimes we come across jurisdictions that have um, have strong rules and strong accountability mechanisms. Uh, but there's no external requirement that mm-hmm. any agency run their informants in any particular way. So again, a couple of years ago, there was a, a, a terrible tragedy in Florida. A young woman named Rachel Hoffman, a college graduate, Woman with a young woman with a bright future. Uh, she was arrested for having a small amount of drugs in her apartment, and the police uh, pressured her to become an informant in order to avoid going to jail. And so she agreed to become an informant, uh, even though she had no background in, in any sort of violence or any serious crime or anything like that. They sent her on a very dangerous sting uh, with um, many thousands of dollars to buy a large amount of drugs and a gun. And during that sting, she was killed. Ah. As a result of her death and the advocacy work of her family and others in Florida, Florida passed a new groundbreaking law. It's named after her. It's called Rachel's Law. And it requires every police department in Florida to come up with guidelines about when it is appropriate and when it would be inappropriate to turn a person into an informant. Mm-hmm. So. So those guidelines would require police to consider certain things. For example, how young is the person? Have they ever been involved in crime or violent crime before? Do they have a substance abuse problem? Substance abuse problem. Uh, perhaps they may have a mental disability that should be considered. Now, these are not rules that prevent the police from using anyone as an informant. All they are is the requirement that the police have a, a list of sensible factors that they consider every time they make this very important decision that can affect a person's life. And the thing to notice about this is before Rachel's law, Florida police didn't have to have those guidelines at all. And there's no other state in the union at the moment that requires 
its police departments to have such guidelines. We are really at the very beginning of regulating this important area. Alexandra, after that happened and this law passed, has there been any research to see what what real changes have been made? Have there been um, have they really stepped up to the plate as to a higher standard? Have you have you seen that in Florida? Uh, so, so Rachel's law was passed just a couple of years ago, and the guidelines were just recently established. So I would think it would be too. Or I, I'm unaware of any studies, and I think it would be too early to have any meaningful data um, from the experiment like that. But but. Uh, I think we should all be keeping our eyes on Florida because they are really embarking on a very important effort to make this policy of turning suspects into criminal informants more accountable, more transparent, and safer. Safer for everyone. Safer for the informants themselves, safer for law enforcement who has to work with the informants, and safer for the communities uh, in which these informants live. So now you've been talking about a suspect, but how about someone who's actually in jail? How are they different, the jailhouse informants? Well, the core, uh, as I write in the book, the core challenge of criminal informant use is the deal. These are criminal defendants, suspects uh, who are providing information to the government in exchange for leniency for themselves. This is the one shared characteristic of all criminal informants. Right. Now, some of them are in jail. Some of them are on the street. Some are in prison. Uh, Some may be uh, still working in the corporation that the government is investigating. So we can have informants in all kinds of places. Yes. Now, jailhouse informants in particular have received a great deal of attention recently and for very good reason, because we have learned uh, from what's often called the innocence movement, from all the organizations around the country who have been working to show how uh, we have people on death row in this country who are demonstrably innocent and shouldn't be there, mm-hmm. or who have been convicted of very serious crimes uh, like rape or other crimes uh, of which they are innocent. And the innocence movement has revealed that jailhouse snitches, as they're often referred to, are a very important source of wrongful conviction. Mm-hmm. Uh, criminal informants are generally, but jailhouse snitches are sort of a particularly insidious uh, subgroup of criminal informants. And one of the reasons we know more about jailhouse informant, um, jailhouse informant unreliability than we do about other kinds of informants is because there have been some very important studies done specifically of jailhouse informants. So, for example, here in Los Angeles, a little over a decade ago, uh, the Los Angeles County Jail was famously rife with jailhouse informant use. Informants were buying and selling information. They were fabricating information about each other. They were targeting each other. Sheriffs would put informants and suspects together uh, in cells or in the tank to try to get information about suspects and targets. Prosecutors were using that information even though they knew it was unreliable. It was just a terrible situation. And after the Los Angeles Times ran a series of exposés about this situation, uh, a grand jury was assembled, and there was a massive investigation. And so we have um, a a really incredible in-depth exploration of the jailhouse snitch phenomenon as it was taking place in the Los Angeles County Jail at the time. So a couple of things happened as a result of that. One is that Los Angeles County itself made some very significant changes. The district attorney's office here created new rules 
for when jailhouse informants could be used in cases. They almost never use them anymore. They, they created a jailhouse snitch uh, central index, keeping track of anyone who had ever been a jailhouse snitch and given information to the government. So the prosecutors would know if they wanted to use a witness, oh, that person has tried to testify before. That person has given information to the government before in exchange for a benefit. This is a seasoned informant. Um, and so Los Angeles now, uh, if, if the Department of Justice rules for the FBI or the gold standard for, the, for criminal informant use more generally, L.A. County has the gold standard rules for the use of jailhouse snitches. And the Los Angeles County Grand Jury Report uh, inspired other studies and reports around the country, indeed around the world. Um, Canada had held a similar commission in, at which they, in which they looked at the same practice. And what we see is that it's not limited to Los Angeles. It's not limited to Canada. Uh, this is a universal phenomenon that happens in jails all over the country. The dangers are well known. The unreliability is well documented. Um, and as a result, we've seen legislatures all around the country, including California, but also Texas, Illinois, um, who have passed laws requiring stricter rules for the use of jailhouse informants. So let me ask you this question. If someone in Los Angeles, for example, is a jailhouse informant and they are using them, and you said using them less, and they find that they perjured themselves, is there any enhancement is there, in other words, is there any stick? You got the carrot if you're, you know, maybe get some some benefit if you do help to prosecute someone. But what about if you lied? Is there any any consequence for these yeah. guys? So, Mari, that's a great question. Um, traditionally and historically, there has been no stick. It's all carrot, <laughs> all incentive to fabricate, and almost no disincentive, at least no legal disincentive. Prosecutions for perjury of uh, criminal informants are extremely rare. Uh, we just rarely come across them. And we can understand why, because the government is so heavily reliant on criminal informants for information. To turn around and prosecute an informant would chill other informants from coming forward, from, part- uh, from, from giving information and entering into the deal. So it's just a, it's a very rare phenomenon. As a result of the grand jury investigation here in L.A., the district attorney's office did prosecute two jailhouse informants for perjury. Uh, that, that was groundbreaking. It had uh, barely happened before. And I've heard of few, there are a few cases around the country in which the government, particularly the federal government recently, I've seen a couple of cases in which the government has turned around and prosecuted one of its own informants uh, for, for lying, for lying to the government or for committing perjury. But it's just very rare. And so you really put your finger on the problem, which is that there are massive incentives to fabricate uh, throughout the system. The system rewards information. It rewards cooperation. And there are almost no disincentives. Uh, and very rare. it's very rare for an informant to be punished for lying. Right. So there's no consequences. Anybody could make up anything. And then you know that if you... So what if you're lying, Right. I mean, basically, that's it. So what if you're lying? You have this opportunity to maybe get a better deal or maybe get get some benefits, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, that's how the system is constructed at the moment. There's no legal requirement that the government uh, go after its own informants. And there are many disincentives for the government to do it because uh, it, it uh, might threaten the supply of informants and cooperators. So this is why you wrote the book, huh? 
<laughs> tell it's, me about how that came about. Yeah, tell me how that came about. It's a great book, by the way. Oh, uh, I love you. it. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, uh, well, the big answer is I wrote the book because uh, after learning more about the informant phenomenon myself, I realized that it was, as you said, almost entirely invisible, uh, that nobody knew about this from the outside of the criminal justice system, whereas inside the criminal justice system, everybody took it for granted. I, uh, one, uh, before I became a professor, I was a uh, community attorney in Baltimore. I had a, a grant from the Open Society Institute to do um, community work. And one of the things I used to do is teach classes in the evening at community centers and, and youth centers. And I was teaching a class one night uh, there in Baltimore, and a young kid, maybe couldn't have been more than 12 years old. He raised his hand. He asked me a question. He said, look, I got a question. Drug dealers stay on the corner and police let them because they're snitching. <laughs> Is that illegal? Can the police do that? <sighs> and oh my at God. first... My first reaction was shock that the 12-year-old was explaining to me that this is how he perceived law enforcement to work in his own community. Uh, but the answer was yes, that police have that discretion. They can let a drug dealer remain at large if that individual is providing information and is, uh, seems to be useful to the government. And when I explained this to this boy and his friends, they were all disgusted. They said, oh, well, the law enforcement isn't doing their job. And so all you got to do is snitch and you can keep on dealing. Mm-hmm. And I realized that this was their world that mm. was very hard to see from the outside. That was really the first time I glimpsed how important the use of criminal informants really was, not just as a legal phenomenon, but as a social phenomenon. And then after that, I became a, an assistant federal public defender also in Baltimore, and I was representing uh, people in federal court, and I realized that in the federal system, we call it cooperation, that cooperation was just the grease on every wheel, that any case could be dealt with through a cooperation agreement. A- anything was up for grabs. Anyone could make a deal. Anyone mm-hmm. could trade any kind of information in any kind of case. And, and it was just so run-of-the-mill that nobody questioned it. My gosh. And it was the combination of those things, realizing that children were growing up, understanding that in effect justice was for sale in their neighborhoods mm. and that lawyers, attorneys and prosecutors and judges and everybody understood that this was the way of the world. And yet from the outside, the whole thing was completely invisible. And I thought somebody should write a book about this. <laughs> somebody should make this into a movie. Somebody yeah. should, although there was a great movie um, uh, called the, called the informant yes. based on the Kurt Eichenwald book uh, about a white-collar informant in, uh, in a large firm of Archer Daniel Midfield, I think, uh, who gave the government a huge runaround. He was informing on, on the CEO and the other high-level white-collar offenders in his own firm, and he at the same time was embezzling, and he was lying to the FBI, and the FBI really didn't know, uh, in that case, which end was up. And it was a, it was a, a frightening but also... Um, just really eye-opening example of how the government really may not have uh, any kind of control over their own informants, control over whether the information is reliable, and control over the informant's own criminal behavior. You know, Alexander, you're right in near Hollywood. 
I think you should take your book. I think you should get an agent. And I think you need to do another book about what happens with these jailhouse inform. Well, I've seen there's been some stuff, but I think now you have it at a much higher level. I think we're ready for the movie that you direct. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll certainly let Hollywood know that you said so. <laughs> well, we are just about out of time. What a, what a wonderful book and what a great eye opener. And thank you so much for sharing with my audience because they really need to have this good information. So we will talk to you again. And especially I want to hear when the movie comes out. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Mari, very, very much. Okay. We'll talk to you again soon, Alexandra. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And let's find out what from you by sending us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.